It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, of course. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can listen now on the iHeartRadio app. Take us with you anywhere you go. And also, we want to welcome those listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth, as well as anyone listening on their favorite podcast platform. It's a pleasure to have you all with us. It's also a pleasure to have with us here on the show, my first guest, and it is Kent Roach. Now, Kent is here because he wrote an article in the conversation entitled George Floyd's Legacy, Derek Chauvin, Guilty Verdict Should Dispel the End of Police Immunity. So we're here to talk to him about that, but a little more about Kent. He is the the Pritchard Wilson Chair of Law and Public Policy at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, and he is a former law clerk of uh, Justice Bertha Wilson of the Supreme Court of Canada and has been the Editor-in-Chief of the Criminal Law Quarterly since 1998. In 2002, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and in 2013, he was one of four academics awarded a Trudeau Fellowship in recognition of his research in social contribution. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Kent to the show. Well, thank, thank you very much, David, for that generous introduction. Well, it's a pleasure, and uh, thank you for joining us on the show to talk about these very important issues. Your article titled George Floyd's Legacy, Derek Chauvin, Guilty Verdicts Could Spell the End of Police Immunity. And in, police immunity is one of the topics that you focus on in this article. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, so, I mean, the article really emerges out of some larger work that I'm doing on policing, including policing in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, as important as that guilty verdict was for accountability for the past, we also need justice for the future. And justice for the future means making sure that um, uh, the, 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 the sort of murder that we saw uh, in uh, uh, of, of George Floyd, but also uh, the continued killing uh, of people by police uh, in all parts of North America uh, stops. And so, you know, certainly in Canada, um, there are echoes of George Floyd. I mean, we all in uh, June of 2020 uh, uh, saw uh, Rodney Levy, uh, Mm -hmm. Chantal Moore Mm -hmm. uh, being killed by the police, uh, Chief Alan Adam, um, the video. Uh, So really, it's it's about thinking through how we can prevent uh, these abuses uh, of human rights in the future. Now, certainly, you know, in reading over the article and this qualified immunity that you bring up, I certainly understand from a perspective of we have to protect the people that are upholding the law for us and are, and are, are doing that great job. Absolutely. We need to have that. But, you know, you point out about this qualified immunity that protects uh, police as well as government officials. And of course, it sounds like there's more than than one system happening. You know, there's 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 the the rules for the police and and the government officials. And then there's the other one for for the rest of us. No, uh, exactly. And I mean, I mean, this this is part of a two tiered system. And I think people know in their guts that 
if it was someone uh, assaulting a police officer, it would be uh, perhaps different. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the, these are inequalities. And, you know, we, we in, in Canada, for example, I think we do somewhat better than the United States, but I wouldn't want to say we do a lot better. So in Canada, you know, we have special investigation units who, uh, who um, uh, investigate, but say in the Rodney Levy case from New Brunswick, they found that uh, there was no grounds to charge the police officer. Uh, And, you know, uh, even if you accept that, it seems to me that uh, the other question moving forward is why do we see so many people dying at the hands of the police, especially when they have uh, uh, mental disturbances Mm -hmm. and they have things like a knife where you would think that it might not be necessary uh, to uh, fire uh, multiple shots into center mass as mm. unfortunately uh, the police are still trained to do. Yeah. I remember reading or seeing something about, uh, you know, the, the, the George Floyd incident where I saw in, in the recent case where, you know, he fought back or he was fighting back and he was managed to get managed to get the upper hand on, on three police officers or something like that. And I, and I don't know if this is accurate or not. It's just uh, something I remember seeing or hearing. And, I, and, and what it brought to mind was, well, your body and your brain, I think, would just kick into the fight or flight or survival mode and might react and it's a knee-jerk reaction to protect yourself uh do you, do you know what i'm saying yeah no 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 absolutely and you know when i watched the the closing arguments in the chauvin case i, I mean i, I kind of wondered why the defense kept playing that video because when i looked at george floyd i saw uh a person who uh Uh, probably was suffering from claustrophobia, which Mm. is something that I'm familiar with Mm. myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, you just have to wonder why with that many police officers there, uh, why they couldn't have tried uh, to de-escalate and uh, um, have, have helped him more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that, you know, uh, a lot of police training has to do with use of force and use of weapons. Mm-hmm. And um, we need to have uh, uh, not only training, but also um we have to change the culture of policing so that it that 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 police have more humility, more empathy, uh, uh, and so forth. And you know, it may be that some listeners think that that's a lost cause. And you know, I I, I respect those views, but I'm not sure that in the short term, at least, we have much alternative but to try to change the police. So one of the things that I think is good that happened after the verdict was that um, the Federal Department of Justice is now investigating the Minneapolis police Mm -hmm. because this is not the first time Mm -hmm. that um, these sorts of incidents have happened. And so the American experience is often that um, um, uh, police forces uh, have detailed uh, oversight uh, from the court and from experts and from the community uh, and that that can change. 
in Canada, uh, we don't necessarily have that same tradition. The Ontario Human Rights Commission is trying to do something like that with the Peel Force. But, you know, I really worry about the RCMP, which is, of course, the local police for much of Canada, uh, that we don't have anything like that with the RCMP. And, of course, we know that the RCMP has uh, more than its share of problems. Yeah. Now, going back to what you're saying about the, the, the police culture and uh, dealing with, you know, the, the weapons and, and the training and those kind of things. What can you tell us about how and when this all changed? When when did this start to become, you know, where where police forces needed, for instance, arm, armed uh, vehicles and and the, the kind of the kind of weaponry that they are, are using now? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, kind of the militarization of the police, I think, you know, part of that story in the United States is that a lot of surplus military uh, vehicles and and equipment uh, go to the police. And, you know, police unions are understandably concerned about the health and safety of their members. And so there's kind of an escalation. And, you know, so for example, uh, when the RCMP informed Debbie Baptiste of Colton, Colton Bushy, uh, um, 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 death mm. uh, they came with carbines yeah. and a police dog Right. Uh, so, you know, even in rural Saskatchewan, uh, there is unfortunately signs of the militarization of the police. And of course, you know, when you talk about uh, policing protests, I think all of us would kind of get angry. None of us like to be bullied. And if you see a police officer dressed up in riot gear, um, I'm afraid, you know, that there's a kind of a human instinct. If, if, if that's what you're expecting from me, well, you know, uh maybe i maybe i should um um uh, uh riot mm. yeah i i guess the the other thing is that 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 protection that bubble that the police find themselves in because of all the weaponry and because of the protective gear that they have um it makes you wonder what their mindset is around around situations as well yeah, no, and you know, and, and the fact that that Chauvin was a training officer, and you know that uh, um, there there is this concern, and you know, I mean, the way that they looked at the the group of onlookers who you know to me were upset but displayed uh, restraint, and mm-hmm. perhaps it was restraint because they were scared mm-hmm. of the police. But I mean, that that was not uh, from what I saw on the videos. Uh, and and uh, an angry mob that was going to attack mm-hmm. the police. So I think, you know, we're in this very difficult situation where the police feel under siege and seem to sometimes make things worse. Uh, now, you know, I don't want to be all pessimistic. I mean, one thing recently, just in Canada, is I think it was very interesting how police forces said to Doug Ford, thanks, but no thanks, with respect to some of the, uh, you know, stop and uh, and question powers that he wanted to foist on them with respect to COVID. And, you know, I hope that enlightened police leaders will realize that things need to change and that policing the ideal of policing is based on consent, consent of those who are being policed. And mm-hmm. I think that we need to work on 
on on that issue going forward. And on that same note, I think it's, you know, we should also point out that uh, policing is a tough job, let's face it, and, and certainly the kind of uh, situations that they can find themselves in, um, especially in light of, uh, as you pointed out, the, 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 uh, the weaponry that is out there and available to people now, the assault weapons and those kind of things that are, that are out there, especially, you know, south of the border that, that uh, you know, anyone can, can sort of purchase. Um, that's scary stuff. It is, it is. And, and you know, uh, uh, it was very hard because Chauvin doesn't seem, I mean, even in court, he doesn't really seem to be very expressive. So I don't know. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, in, in reading the public report on the Rodney Levy case, um, I think that there was a degree of fear. But I also worry that the police are somewhat mechanically going up this kind of chain of use of force. So, you know, if the taser doesn't work, then you go to the gun. Uh, whereas sometimes I think uh, time and stepping back and using your mouth as mm-hmm. opposed to using your arms mm-hmm. uh, or your physical force uh, can sometimes be a better way. But but you're quite right that, that you know, um, I'm not a police officer, uh, so I have to have some degree of humility about uh, what they 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 go through. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show is Kent Roach, and we are talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, George Floyd's Legacy, Derek Chauvin, Guilty Verdicts Could Spell the End of Police Immunity. What you were just saying leads into the the idea of the other things that you point out in the article beyond the uh, George Floyd the things that you point out about this this Texas prisoner, for instance, that had to sleep naked in a cell covered with feces and sewage for days. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, you know, the, the United States legal system is one that I've called uh, a system of extra legalism, and by that I mean that. You know, it particularly doesn't honor the dicey idea that if your rights are violated, you should have a remedy. And a lot of this is because of qualified immunity, which is basically a rule that says it's not enough to prove that a police officer or a prison official violated your rights. You have to prove that they did so kind of, you know, willfully mm-hmm. and that the right was clearly established. Right. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons reasons why we all know that the United States did some very um, terrible things to people after 9-11, but there really has been no successful civil lawsuits in American courts, uh, and people looking for remedies have had to try to get them elsewhere, sometimes in Canadian courts, sometimes in the European Court of Human Rights, and I'm talking here about people that were um, uh, tortured. So um, it seems like in the United States, both the courts and the legislature are now slowly starting to rethink this idea. And so there's been a law passed by the House of Representatives that would abolish qualified immunity, so would abolish those protections from damages. But it remains to be seen whether the Senate, uh, which is very evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats, 
Democrats is going to pass it. And the U.S. Supreme Court has, in a couple of recent cases, including the one you mentioned from Texas, eased up a little bit with respect to qualified um, immunity. Although, you know, I have to say that even in the United States, uh, people argue that, you know, you should allow this lawsuit to go, 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 go forward. And, you know, maybe you'll get a nominal damage award for having your rights violated. And by nominal, I mean, literally one dollar. Uh, and you know that sort of remedy uh, I think tends to trivialize mm. uh, the importance of of rights I mean I think it's it's very hard to translate rights into money mm-hmm. uh, rights are about feelings of dignity security equality um, so they always are imperfectly translated into money but telling someone you get a one dollar damage or even five thousand dollars damage um, is 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 not something that uh, really affirms that their right and and themselves matter that much. Mm. Now, they, the the uh, the the policing act you were referring to is the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and and you know, of course, the evening after the verdict, you saw both the vice president and the president of the United States speak about that. Uh, but you know, the American system is ones of checks and balances, and uh, the police unions are very opposed to that part of the the, the justice in policing act. And uh, you know, just to be clear, I mean, I you know. I think in most cases it shouldn't be the individual police officer who has to pay, although in some cases that may be warranted. Uh, it probably should be the state, but uh, hopefully that will get through. But, you know, one of the reasons why I'm writing more about policing right now is I think that we have a window uh, to, to mm. change policing. But I also think that the forces, the, the more conservative forces are strong and the window may, cha- may close very soon and so that's why I think it's important for people to um, to be active on this issue both in the United States but also here in Canada Mm because we have lots and lots of problems with policing in Canada now you you point out the, the damages and, and paying damages. Um, and, and that's important, as you, you say. However, and, and you, you explained that in the George Floyd case that the qualified immunity was not an issue. Um, and it helps explain why that uh, they agreed to pay $27 million in damages. Does that in itself reflect, uh, as you say, it shows that there is some wrongdoing. Why does that then not carry over into the other allegations to in in regard to the police officers then yeah well i mean you know one is that when you sue someone you have a different standard of proof than in the criminal law so mm-hmm. you know the criminal law it's always going to be harder to get convictions of police officers criminal convictions because you have to prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. whereas to get damages you you just have to prove kind of you know 51 percent uh um mm-hmm. that the person was in the wrong uh 
but you know, the, I mean, the other thing is, you know, as 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 important as the twenty seven million dollars for the Floyd family was, um, again, that looks to the past, yeah. and you know, they they are donating some of that money to a memorial, and I think that that's 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 very important. But I also heard from many of the Floyd family who were interviewed after the victim, uh, 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 sorry, after the verdict, that they wanted to make sure that nothing like this happened they didn't want anyone else any other families to go through what they've gone through so you know again i you know i think remedies have to look both to the past uh in order to make some amends but they also have to look to the future to make sure that um these sorts of uh rights violations and abuses don't occur again and again and again Mm. now the other thing you then point out about potentially moving forward are these consent degrees, which um, you, you talk about, even though the Minneapolis Police Department was not under such a consent degree, but you do mention that other cities uh, in the States were under the consent degree where there were some other killings that took place. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, uh, and, and, and I think um, hopefully the Minneapolis police force will be under a consent degree soon now that the department, the federal department of justice is investigating them. So basically what the consent decree does is it often requires the police service to, to collect statistics, including race-based statistics, statistics on the use of force, statistics, on how often certain officers uh, use force or are the subject of complaints. And it often requires them to revisit their policies, their training, and it sometimes requires them to um, uh, consult with the community in new, new, new ways. So I'm not saying that this is perfect or a panacea, mm-hmm. but to me, this, this is important going forward. And really what it does is it makes a judge uh, um, ultimately responsible, uh, at least for a time, about how the police runs, uh, runs itself. But in a number of jurisdictions, it seems to have gotten the police into better habits so that they realize most police forces don't like having a consent decree. They, you know, uh, none of us like someone looking over our shoulders uh, while we work, but um, uh, some some forces have improved, at least as measured by complaints and use of force, after they've been subject to this kind of intense scrutiny for a year, two years or three three years so so these things take time and i think that's another difference than with a verdict is we shouldn't expect any verdict whether it's 27 million dollars or a criminal conviction to change things overnight life isn't that simple Mm -hmm. uh it's hard work and it's hard work for everyone to change policing going forward and so that's why i'm much more optimistic about consent decrees than uh than these kind of one remedies of damages or even mm. a criminal conviction. I, I guess along with that, thinking about it in terms of if you don't like someone looking over your shoulder, and I know what you're saying, no, no one does like that. However, generally that wouldn't be necessary if there wasn't questions, correct? 
Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, you know, the the Federal Department of Justice has really gone into cities like Los Angeles, where there have been some pretty chronic problems. And so I think it's good that they're going into Minneapolis. Uh, And again, you know, here in Ontario, we know that the Ontario Human Rights Commission is is now trying to negotiate a dissent or has negotiated a consent decree with the Peel police and so they have an outside monitor uh, who's a professor I think it's Professor Lauren Foster uh, from York and so they're going to collect data and we also know that the Ontario Human Rights Commission is doing extensive uh, studies and inquiries into the Toronto Police Service so um, it remains to be seen whether that will result in a consent decree but this is a way of trying to make human rights more in the mainstream of police culture and police operations. And so, you know, again, I, I wouldn't want people to think that that I think this is only a problem south of the border. Mm-hmm. I think we can learn from what's happening south of the border. But, uh, you know, with respect to consent decrees, I think they should also be used um, here in Canada. In regard to learning and uh, looking to the future, do you feel somewhat optimistic about how things are moving forward, that things could improve coming out of all this this dark and unfortunate events that have happened? Yeah, I mean, I do feel somewhat optimistic um, because I think that, you know, since George Floyd's death and, and as I said, you know, what happened in Canada in in June of last year, um, I think that there is much more public scrutiny. And I think that if if people keep voicing their concerns, uh, things uh, may change. If you don't voice your concerns, then it's going to be easy to go back to business as as usual. And we know that when it's business as usual, the people who suffer disproportionately are Indigenous people and racialized groups and other uh, uh, marginalized groups. So I think that that this is the time. Uh, There's no guarantees. Uh, but we all have to try to do our little part uh, in trying to improve uh, uh, policing, but, but more generally improve uh, community safety and, and well-being. Well, I guess one of the things that we did see that was different uh, coming out of the George Floyd incident was, in fact, that uh, these these marches and protests and, and things didn't just take place within the confines of the United States. It was worldwide. People stood up and, and demanded. Exactly. And, and, you know, uh, you know, we have ways to communicate that people 100 years ago couldn't dream of. And so I do think that that the global aspects of of this is is extremely important. And so, you know, um, I also think that um, groups that are targeted by the police need to make alliances with each other because, you know, you're always stronger, the broader the 
base. And although, you know, everyone has a particular history that needs to be respected and often a bad history with the police, I think we need to have broad-based alliances to, uh, to, to deal with common concerns about overly aggressive policing mm-hmm. uh, and police shootings um, and other abuses that uh, the police um, sometimes um, in, engage in. Right. Kent, we'll have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about your article entitled uh, George Floyd's Legacy, Derek Chauvin's Guilty Verdicts Could Spell the End of Police Immunity uh, from the conversation, but also just elaborating on that and talking about other things uh, here in Canada as well. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to uh, perhaps uh, having you back on the show once more has developed in this area and we can uh, perhaps uh, continue the conversation. Absolutely, David. I've I've really enjoyed myself and I'd be happy to come back anytime. All right. Well, you take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Kent Roach. He is the Pritchard Wilson Chair of Law and Public Policy at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. In 2015, he was appointed a member of the Order of Canada, and he won the 2017 Molson Prize for Contributions to the Social Sciences and Humanities. And that is this part of the show, but please don't go away, because after the break, we're going to be coming back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today. My guest is a Paraguayan film and documentary filmmaker, writer, and director, Arami Ulian. And we're talking to her today about a film that is making its premiere, North American premiere, Hot Docs 2021 World Showcase Program. Uh, you can go online and check that out. The name of the film is Nothing But the Sun in English, and that's actually a line from the film. I'm going to try and say this as it is written, but I'm probably going to mess it up. Apane al sol, but I don't know if that's correct. Arami, can you correct me on that? Well, it was not so far. It's apenas el sol. Oh, do you, you pronounce the S? Okay, so you see. Yes, you we go. do pronounce the S. We don't do it as as the French ah, do. <laughs> see, you learn something new every day. You pronounce day. all the letters. Yeah. <laughs> well, how it, are you? I'm okay, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and being on the show to talk about your film. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Our Amy Ulian, you were born in Paraguay, and your first documentary debut, A Cloudy Times, was the first Paraguayan entry at the Oscars in 2016. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Yeah. And now and now your second documentary, uh, Apenas El Sol, is <laughs> the opening Perfect. film um, and documentary film festival at the uh, Amsterdam Documentary Film Festival of 2020. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Thank you. We are really happy with the circuit that the film is doing. Mm-hmm. This ties into the growing plight of the indigenous people everywhere, but it focuses on the indigenous people and their, their um, uprooting from their traditional lands in Paraguay. What makes this film really interesting is how you have managed to find a character in Mateo uh, who happens to be a documentary maker of his own in his own right, using whatever he can find with some outdated and, and uh, tape machines that are always breaking down and he's always having to, to mm-hmm. fix the tapes. It's so wonderful to see as we see him documenting the story of his own people as he goes through this story. It, it's quite wonderful. And... 
you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, before we get into that, I, I'm, I'm rushing ahead because I'm so excited <laughs> to talk about the film. But, but you know, you mentioned you're from Paraguay and we, we, you were just telling me about the situation there. What was it like for you growing up in Paraguay? Yeah, well, I was a child uh, when the Stroessner dictatorship went down. Mm. I know you are you are familiar with the subject, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so the first part of my life uh, developed in this um, dictatorial environment. And of course, that affects uh, perceptions, how you understand the world, um, you know, the level of self uh, and self, self-imposed censorship or the censorship you can feel from, from society. And of course, I was not aware at that time of all of this. But now I can see that many of my behaviors are still linked uh, to that period of time. You know, like we grew up uh, with several rules, not asking too many questions, not discussing politics openly, Mm. not reading certain books uh, that anyway were not available in Paraguay or they were very difficult to get. So um, as you see, it really affects uh, Um, how do you see the world? So Mm -hmm. I grew up like this. And then when the dictatorship went down, after a few years, I accidentally started to work um, doing production for television. Mm -hmm. And so we did like the first um, social uh, debate on on television, the first political social debate on television. And then we went on doing also a radio show that was also part of this changing into into the way that the media was working before and after Stroessner. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, it's one thing to be to be raised in a country like Canada, the United States, you know, with a democracy. But but what you were struggling with and, and coming to terms with at your early age, and then being able to talk about those kind of things openly. How did you find that? How were people finding that discussion around around democracy? Well, it is still a very difficult discussion in Paraguay because. Um, Imagine that happened in 89 Mm. and more than 30 years after, I can say that Paraguay is only um, a democratic country on, let's say, on paper. Mm. But uh, what you actually live there, uh, it's far from being a democracy. Yeah, well, it takes time to change and, and have these things get right through society and, and into the workings of the, of the country. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, that the, the, the years of, of corruption and the years mm-hmm. of having just the same party um, in the government um, have done a lot of harm. And, and, and the corruption went through all parts of, of society somehow. Mm-hmm. And... Um, just for you to know, um, until today, we have the same party in power. It's the same party that Stroessner was part of, mm. Mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So in 30 years, we haven't changed even the party. Right. You know, your film, uh, it, it looks at how uh, the missionaries and how politics affected the indigenous people. And of course, without being able to have the openness or, or, or be restricted by things, you, you don't have that 
education, the knowledge to then be able to change your lives because you don't know. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that you are you are saying this because I'm constantly um, challenging myself to to kind of recover the, 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 the time that I lost. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's quite impossible, you know, like uh, all the education that you didn't receive or that you you were not able to create or the the exercise of thinking that you were not um, allowed to to do it's it's quite tricky to recover all that space and time that was lost and then and being an adult and then you find you know all these holes and gaps in in your in your process of of learning thinking and understanding the world yeah now you also had some other personal struggles when you were growing up your mom was quite ill i understand Yes, my mother was struggling with epilepsy at the time and uh, she was a single mother and I was um, living with her. Uh, we were alone, so I needed to to take care of her mm-hmm. at that time. I was very little. It started when, when I was seven and well, then I did it uh, until adulthood and, mm-hmm. uh, and then she got worse. She got Parkinson's disease too. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, that is mainly the subject of my first film. Mm. So that's very difficult to, to live with, epilepsy. Yes. Um, yes, especially, especially in a country where, you know, um, at that time, um, just to, to give you a context, my, my grandmother would just uh, pray Mm. Uh, and that was her solution to it, mm. you know, because she would she would think that that has to do with with some kind of evil mm. force or mm. you know with the devil or yeah. something like this instead of uh, searching for for proper care and um, and on the other hand uh, the, this whole stigma of of being a single mother and having to work anyway with your even having these illnesses, and uh, my mother was an architect uh, at that time, but she couldn't she couldn't you know be on site mm. anymore mm. in the construction places. It was too dangerous. Mm. So yeah, it was a it was it was really really complicated time. Now moving on to your new film that we are talking about, nothing but the sun, and uh, as we mentioned, it's at this year's uh, 2021 Hot Docs, and people can go online to find out more about that and and buy tickets to to see the film the character of Matteo that you have found tell me about him how did you find him how did you know because it's such a, a wonderful story that you you follow through Matteo yes um Matteo is indeed a documentarian and uh, I got to know him uh, in my first trip to the Paraguayan Chaco region um I have to tell you that um, I didn't know, as many Paraguayans don't know, that there are still uh, people living in complete isolation, Mm. uh, voluntary isolation in Mm -hmm. the forest of the Paraguayan Chaco. Mm -hmm. And I was very surprised uh, to get to know that only in 2013, and that is connected to that lack of information that we had during all this period of mm. the dictatorship. Um, it was just not important 
for the government to inform about these kind of situations. And so in 2013, I did my first trip to the Chaco region and I went there with Benno Glauser. Benno Glauser is an anthropologist. He's based in Paraguay since a very long time. And he took me to the Ayoreo communities and introduced me to Mateo. And Mateo and Benno Glauser were collaborators for many years. And arriving with Glauser uh, to the communities was a sign of trust for Mateo. Mm. So it was a very good starting point for us to start creating a trustful relationship with a, with a fluent and open conversation about the whole complexity of the Ayoreo situation mm. and also about the, the, the possible making of this film. Right. Yes. And, and I just want to, to let people know that what uh, Aremi is, is referring to in the film, and to give you a little more background about this, Nothing But the Sun is looking at the story of how in the 1960s missionaries forcibly uprooted the Aorian communities within Paraguay and from their rich and vast forested uh, ancestral homes to the arid and desolate Paraguayan uh, ch- Chaco region? Chaco. Chaco. Chaco region. And, and it really is, uh, when you see the film, very dry and, and, and a very area that is just, the wind blows the dust around constantly. And you, you wonder how anyone can live there, you know, this, in this arid and desolate uh, region. And to be, to, to be um, moved there, you know, it, it very much in some ways um, is reminiscent of, of what happened to indigenous people elsewhere you know, throughout the world, and specifically, we could say Canada, how the indigenous people were moved from their territories and put on reserves. It's a very familiar story, if I may say so, uh, in in many ways. Yes, um, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure about that. And I just wanted to add that uh, the Chaco region uh, is actually one of the biggest. Uh, forest areas in mm. in, in Latin America, um, along with the Amazonas. Mm. So, um, but what is happening is that you have such a high uh, speed uh, in deforestation every day that uh, these these areas where the natives are living right now, where the indigenous people of Paraguay are living right now, doesn't have any forest anymore. And, and it's very interesting when you see when you say the the wind just blows, mm. and and this is uh, what Mateo says. Well, it blows because there are no trees. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no trees anymore. And uh, when you when you enter, as soon as you enter uh, the, the the forest in the Chaco, uh, is actually much much warmer much humid but mm. there is also uh no wind mm-hmm. it's it's very interesting and basically the story follows mateo as he uh travels around with his his very outdated equipment uh what looks like a a very small tape recorder radio kind of a system that um that is very outdated by our standards of course it, it's it's wonderful to see mateo doing this you know it it, yeah. it it really is and that's what really struck me about about him as he tries to document these stories by getting and talking to everyone how he's dealing with the physical conditions that they are living in and what i mean by that going back to he's dealing with equipment that 
the wind blowing dust and dirt would get into that in every crevice of that piece of equipment. And it must just, must just be terrible to try and even record, um, you know, what he is attempting to do. And he's using these old tapes. He doesn't have new tapes. He's recording over things it looks like, and they're always breaking down and he's having to refix the tapes all the time. It's wonderful yeah. to see, but your heart goes out to him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, we, we have to think that Mateo um, doesn't know any other condition yep. uh, of, of working. So mm-hmm. for him, it's totally normal to deal with, with this amount of dust on, yep. his, on his archives and on his recording, um, uh, on his recorder. Um, and also, I remember there was a time when someone, someone from you know, like a non-Indigenous person went to him and gave him a, a video camera, a digital video camera. Mm. And I remember the, the, the problems that created for him because, mm. you know, like all of a sudden, how he was going to storage right. what he was recording, mm-hmm. how was he going to get more uh, space mm. to to keep on storaging mm-hmm. and how he was going to repair batteries sure. and you know in this in this very far away desolated places so sometimes we go there with solutions we think that we think that these things are solutions but this is only from our point of view exactly. and Mateo came back to the tapes and he keeps on recording on these tapes yep. until until today Fortunately, there there are there are people in Paraguay who were um, digitalizing these tapes for many years, and they are they are safe. Um, they have a backup, but but anyway, as you said, uh, sometimes he doesn't have the tape, so he just have to record uh, on top of it uh, over and over again. Um, it was also a problem for us, you know, to have all the dust uh, in our equipment while shooting, and we could feel the the difficulties that Mateo goes through also uh, on our own skin. Uh, I'm sure you could, you could, and that that is something I wanted to ask you about. Um, but before we get there, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can take us with you if you download the iHeartRadio app. And we welcome those listeners on other radio stations that are now carrying Moment of Truth. My guest here on the show is writer and director of documentary film uh, Apenas al Sol, Nothing But the Sun, Arami Ulian, and uh, it is premiering at the 2021 Hot Docs Film Festival that you can see online from April 29th until May 9th. So if you go online to the Hot Docs Film Festival, you can find out more about this. And I recommend you you do highly to check this film out and see not only the difficulties uh, and the, the wonderful story that we are talking about with uh, the main character that uh, Arami follows around, um, Mateo, and to see the, the difficulties that he he strives but like you said Aremi it's it's he do, he doesn't know anything different so this is perfectly natural for him and it is wonderful to see him doing this because he's doing it you know against all odds he's doing this and he's getting these stories and you just mentioned something that I did want to talk about and that is your own personal struggles that you would have must have had because uh, when I saw the wind whipping up the dust blowing it everywhere I went okay uh, even as someone 
making this documentary, you would have had the struggles of having to deal with uh, dust blowing into the equipment and getting into everything because it does. It will get everywhere. Yeah, it gets everywhere. And uh, it was really um, one job more that we needed to do every single day mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, like um, camera, the camera department and the production team, they needed to to clean um, lenses, microphones mm-hmm. and even, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you need to protect food sure, from from sure. from this dust you need to protect water from yep. this dust and and also the other side of of these um highly deforested uh, areas is that when it comes to rain you also don't have any sort of protection right. so all of a sudden um from not having any water uh, you have too much water then it creates mud that doesn't you know it just doesn't dry for days yep. so uh, you have to make sure that you are in the right place before it starts raining so that was another challenge that that we have we had it was very challenging in many different levels but Mm -hmm. logistically it was also yeah and and of course because it is so dry the water would sit on the land it wouldn't sink into it because it's too dry Right? It would just... That's exactly what happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happens. And that is very difficult, you know, for the trucks to, yeah. to you, you, yeah, you, you, you cannot drive through, through those muddy roads. And so, Matteo, um, tell me about the story of, of pitching the story to him and trying to, you know, get the story that you wanted to document with him. Well, it didn't happen in that way, you know, like I I met him in 2013 Mm -hmm. and for three years we were in contact. Either I was uh, traveling to the Chaco to see him or we were in contact by phone and uh, we just took the time to get to know each other. Mm. And um, by listening to him, I got to the story. Mm. It was not my idea to to have this exact uh, mm. film we have now. Mm. It was really a collaboration between the two of us <laughs> um, because uh, I, I understood at some moment that the right uh, narrative structure was to to just follow what he does mm. since the 70s mm-hmm. that was that was the most interesting thing because Matteo is doing this since the 70s yeah it's amazing so um I just I just said well he's a documentarian since a very long time why am I going to change anything mm. I just have to observe what he does right. what we did together is we 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 did a very deep research in terms of uh, the people that we wanted to have in the film mm. um, because through these life experiences of these characters, we would understand the whole situation, right? So it was very important to have um, the, the right people in, in, in these interviews that, that Matteo um, was going to do. Yes. So um, together, we started, we started talking about every single person that he would remember uh, or that he once uh, recorded, or that he once met, and uh, he would tell me their personal stories, and we would discuss um, the aspect of, of each of them. So each of them will give us uh, a different aspect or, or, or a deeper aspect uh, to, to construct the story. And that's how we uh, decided to shoot the film. 
Right. Now, the, the fact that he has been documenting this since the 70s, I think that's fascinating that he has been doing this. But I got the sense from the story and watching him as he went around and spoke to other people that it was like he was he, he was looking for an answer for himself as well, trying to, to say to himself, is this a place I want to stay or do I want to go back to live in the forest with the other people that my people that are living there traditionally? It, it felt like he was kind of struggling with that question himself. Do you think he was? Absolutely. Uh, Mateo is constantly reflecting and by doing that, uh, he's also creating a, a sort of a philosophy of, of his own terms. It is, I think it is necessary for, for his work as an historian and, and documentarian to keep asking questions, especially to himself, even being aware of the fact that going back to the forest for good is not possible for him anymore. Mm. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think Mateo is really questioning the fact if he can go back or not. I think he, he, he knows that it's not possible, but, but he still, still needs to, to reflect about the whole, the whole mm. violence, the whole process, the whole, whole colonial, mm. colonial uh, um, disgrace that happened to them. And, and by doing that, he also... Um, thinks about the people who are still in the forest and all the, the, the dangers that they are facing and what are the possible futures for, for, for the people that are still, uh, still living in the, original, in the mm. original way of life. And, and yet these people living in the, the small towns where they were, they don't have a very, a very good existence, it looked like. They were struggling. Uh, we saw at one point in the film where they were issued their monthly or bi-monthly uh, amounts. Uh, I guess the government gives them, gives them some money. Yes, um, there is a, a small assistance um, to, to every a native mm. uh, community in Paraguay, but uh, as you as you can see in the film, it is very little. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sixty five dollars yes. per family every two months. Right. And having said that, I have to say that the the, the, the monthly minimums minimal wage in Paraguay is three hundred American dollars. Yes. Per person per month, right. so that gives you a reference of 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 how how small that is. And the other problem is that that assistance is not even stable. Right. You know, sometimes it is there, but it's not a priority for the government if it's not there. Mm-hmm. Now, filming that scene, that was I felt a little. Um awkward for you, uh, your crew, if that makes any sense, because I I was wondering about, gee, was that, was that, what did you have to do to get the clearance to film that particular scene where they were handing out the money in, in the, in the community? Well, um, it wasn't difficult. Mm. And I'll, I'll try to explain why it is not difficult. Um, Simply because in Paraguay, a filmmaker uh, is not taken very seriously. Hmm. So um, you know, for 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 these people, it was not important to be doing this in front of the camera. They hmm. don't see anything wrong hmm. in in doing what they do in the way they do, hmm. and they don't think that uh, being documented uh, for 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 a film will do 
any harm mm. or will, will do anything at all. Mm. That's interesting. Um, I guess they're right in some ways, right? <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Unfortunately, stuff. yes. Yeah. In, in some way, they're right. Yeah. Now, Matteo, are you still in contact with him? Definitely. Last time we talked was yesterday, and um, it, it was interesting. We we talked because um, a missionary uh, went to see him um, last week uh, to to say that he was very angry because uh, he saw the trailer of the film mm. and he saw that some Ayoreo people are still singing shamanic songs and that um, the church and religion has already, um, uh, has already told them uh-huh. that this is something that uh, cannot be done. Right. So... We are also facing uh, what is going to happen when 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 the, when the film is shown in Paraguay. So we are very alert, and uh, we will be, um, you know, uh, we will be very closely um, doing this process with Mateo and the Ayoreo mm-hmm. community. Harami, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for bringing this film forward and uh, the the wonderful story. Not so wonderful story, but the but it is a wonderful story that it tells because it comes from uh, such a, a wonderful place in in Mateo. And uh, and con- congratulations and all the best with this and all the other projects that you'll be doing in the future. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, you take care. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. That's our Amy Ullion, and she is the writer and director of Nothing But the Sun, Apenas del Sol, and it is premiering at the North American Hot Docs 2021 World Showcase Program. You can see that from April 29th until May 9th. So go online, find out about how you can get tickets and check it out. I urge you to just to find out what Nothing But the Sun is, the line that is in the song itself. And that is your show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for watching and and listening to Moment of Truth each and every day right here on Element FM. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.